the greatest need you and I have is the renovation of our hearts. Now, you, you haven't arrived, so we don't have to pretend that we have. I came to give abundance, not scarcity. They didn't go to church. They were church. Okay, let me repeat everything I just said. of Acts. In Acts is this amazing story of the launch of the church. It's a continuation of everything that Jesus began to do and teach in the gospel of Luke. And Luke just continues the thread through the book of Acts. There are signs and wonders that are done. There are sermons that are preached. People respond. They repent. And then the church just grows. And as it grows, there are some amazing things that take place. But there are also some really heartbreaking things. And what I love about Luke is that he doesn't skip over the heartbreaking things. He doesn't paint this picture that is just this full of sentimentality and romanticism. And we, we get that way sometimes about the early church. Oh, if we could just go back to the early church. If we could just go back to the way things were, you know. Yeah, it was messy. I love it that Luke includes the messiness in the text. And, but there is this portrait, this summary in Acts 2 that is really cool. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They were devoted. They were filled with awe. They were worshiping. They were exploding. They had everything in common. What a cool portrait of the church and the Lord added to their number every day it's like I want in on that today's passage is really similar it's two chapters later the end of Acts 4 all the believers were one in heart and mind no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own but they shared everything they had with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them. They brought the money from the sales, and they put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. This is a picture of the gospel being proclaimed, but also embodied and demonstrated. Preaching happened, you know. The gospel was presented, the sacrifice of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and people responded, cut to the heart. They repented and they were baptized, but then they embodied by the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit, they embodied what it meant to be Jesus' people, and then they demonstrated it. They showed it. They acted on it. 
They were one in heart, in mind. They had everything in common. There were no needy people among them. They were the new Israel. In Deuteronomy, there was a a mandate about the old Israel, right? In Deuteronomy 15, God says, there should be no poor among you. No poor in our community. And the church was convinced that that was their calling. If you need something that I have, I give freely. And not everybody in in the church sold their houses and fields and land. It was free. It wasn't communism. It was a free gift. They felt free to give. From time to time, they would. And they would come and they would bring the money that the land or the house uh, was sold for. And they would put it at the apostles' feet. And what that was saying was that then the apostles had the responsibility of distributing it, distributing it according to the need. When I was a youth minister right out of college, um, I was at a church downtown here in Lafayette, and it was a, a hub of really caring for the, the community. And there were probably 20 or 25 churches that contributed to this fund, and then our church was the distributor of those funds. And so every day there would be people that came in that had needs for paying the electric bill or for food or for housing. And um, that was a centralized location. That's what was happening in the early church. And so there were no needy among them. Here's an example, verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This appeared to be the custom, right? This is an intro to Barnabas. His real name is Joseph. He was of the tribe of the the Levites, the priestly tribe. Um, He was from Cyprus. And evidently back in Cyprus, he had some land and he sold it and he brought it to take care of the poor. He, He didn't do that to get noticed, He didn't do that to get a brick with his name on it. He didn't do that uh, to get a cool nickname. He did it because he was responding to the gospel. He was responding to Jesus, the generosity of Jesus in his own life, and it spilled out into wanting to give. His nickname was Son of Encouragement. You will be called Barney. The son of encouragement. The things are going great. Things are awesome. There is this sense of oneness. And yeah, there are some signs of early persecution in chapter 3 and first part of 4. You know, James and, I mean, John and Peter are arrested. But there are prayers of boldness. And what we see in this boldness is that the church is exploding and people are feeling awesome. And then you get to chapter five. But a man named Ananias, or now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. 
Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And and after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. And then the young men came forward, and they wrapped up his body, and they carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said. That is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young men came in, and finding her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. So in chapter 5. Things are going well. Then this man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, they're new to the church community. And and like Barnabas, they have some real estate. And they decided they're going to get on this. Let's sell a field and give the money to the poor train. Except they kind of distorted the original version. Really distorted the original version. This was a, a knockoff. This was... An illusion. They made a plan. They made a scheme. They talked through the details, make sure they were on the same page. And then they decided they would sell a field, just like Barnabas, and they would keep back part of the money. Been wanting to go on this Mediterranean vacation for a long time. I don't, I don't know why. They kept back part of it. And then they would, they would bring the rest of it, and they would lay it at the apostles' feet. And then it would appear that they were giving all of the money, but they would still have this pocket of money for themselves. And it was a win-win-win proposition. The poor gets fed. We get our vacation. Maybe a nickname. Maybe a brick with our name on it. They wanted the applause without the sacrifice. They wanted the reputation without the actual generosity. And so they faked it. Have you ever been in a job where you were expecting a raise, but instead you got fired? I hope not. Okay, have you ever walked out of an exam thinking that you absolutely killed it, and then you got a D? Okay, good. You can. Well, this is way worse. This is way, way, way worse than that. They were feeling pretty good about themselves, but the. Peter has the the inside scoop from the Holy Spirit, and he says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and you have kept part of the money for yourself? How is it that you have allowed Satan to have a foothold in your life? The, The money was completely at your disposal. You didn't have to give anything. You could do what you wanted, but you've lied. You haven't lied to us. You've lied to God, he says. And when Ananias heard this, he fell over dead. Was it a heart attack? Was it shock? I don't know. It's pretty clear that this was God's judgment. Immediate judgment. And it's not that Peter pronounced this curse or something. In fact, I think Peter was probably as surprised as Ananias. 
Luke, the writer of Acts, says that great fear came over the church. You think? Then some guys from the youth group came in and wrapped up the body and buried him. And now verse 7 says, three hours later, Sapphira walked in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter's been processing this. He knows where this is going. And he asks her. He gives her an opportunity. He says, is this the price you got for the land? And Sapphira must have been taken back a bit, but this is the plan. We're going to keep on the plan. I'm going to stand by my man. And so she said, Yes, this is the price. And Peter says, how could you agree to test the Holy Spirit? See the guys with shovels at the door? They weren't planting shrubbery. And she dies, and they bury her. And great fear seized the church. It was going so well. Why did you have to make things so complicated? This was a virus of greed and deceit that, dis- that threatened to destroy the church when the church was barely walking. God was reframing the house even as it was beginning to be built. Dallas Willard said this about the renovation project. We read this the first week. He said, the greatest need you and I have is the renovation of our hearts. That spiritual place within us from which outlook, choices, and actions have been formed by a world away from God. Now it must be transformed. It's a revolution of character which proceeds by changing people from the inside through ongoing personal relationship to God in Christ and to one another. It is a deconstruction and reconstruction process that God is doing. And it starts here. It starts here. This is a tough, tough passage. I mean, right out of the gate, things are going so well, and then, boom. On the one hand, there are a lot of things that this passage does not say. There are a lot of questions that we have with this passage. We just don't know. On the other hand, there are some things packed into these verses that are incredibly important for us. And so I, I want to just look at three sets of contrast between chapter 4 and chapter 5. That word, but, sets us up just to look at these two worlds. Are we doing all right? Okay. Mind spinning? It's heavy. Let me pray for us, and then let's, let's, let's get a little bit deeper into this. Lord, there are things in Scripture that just, we're not sure what to do with. There are things that seem a bit incongruent. And so would you give us a deeper sense of trust that you are completely congruent. That your grace and truth are two sides of the same coin. And 
while we're like looking at this through the lens of that seems so unfair, the reality is that we all absolutely deserve what Ananias and Sapphira got, that we all have fallen short of the glory of God, that we all are sinners in need of grace. And so would you even deconstruct a bit of our entitlement this morning in order to see you in a fuller way? We need your grace for all of this, and we pray in Christ. Amen. All right, really just let's look at these contrasts, okay? Integrity versus duplicity. In, in chapter 4, the, the church in Barnabas, in the apostles, they were examples of integrity. In chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira are, are poster children for duplicity. Duplicity being deceit, dishonesty, fraud, one-upmanship, two-facedness, hypocrisy. Satan is trying to destroy the church even as it's getting off the ground. He is the father of lies, and so it makes sense that that is the sin. The sin was that they lied to God. John Stott put it this way, if the devil's first tactic was to destroy the church by force from without via persecution, then the second was to destroy it by falsehood from within. There is this drift of duplicity that we are all bent toward. To pretend that we are further along than we actually are. To pretend that we are more spiritual, that we are more generous. There is this pretense of integrity that all of us are tempted to uh, take on for ourselves. Ananias and Sapphira are, are giving but they're giving for the sake of appearance and for status, not for the sake of love. They're giving out of self-promotion instead of worship. They wanted the appearance of being spiritual without the total surrender of their lives and their stuff to Christ. They wanted to look spiritual without the internal transformation. You know where I'm going. They wanted the appearance without the reality, and that's called duplicity. And it is all through Scripture. Uh, i got to take time just to read some of this. John 12, they loved human praise more than the praise of God. Galatians 6, if anyone thinks there's something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Luke 12, there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. Mark 7, which is actually quoting Isaiah, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Matthew 7, you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, but you pay no attention to this huge plank in your own, you hypocrite. Matthew 23, you hypocrites, Pharisees, religious leaders, you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but inside you're decaying, ah, bones. 1 John 4. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother is a liar. Titus 1, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. It just goes on and on and on. 
from the garden on, there's been this bent toward duplicity. I'll, I want us just to do something, and because I, I, I want you to feel uh, both freedom to be vulnerable, but realizing that that's a process, could you close your eyes? And then raise your hand if this applies to you. A tendency to compare ourselves to others rather than finding our identity and satisfaction in Christ alone. A tendency to crave the applause of men rather than praising God. A, ten a tendency to fish for compliments rather than having a love for the lost. A tendency to play the game of church of spiritual maturity rather than the humble surrender to the lordship of Jesus. And a, a tendency toward the appearance of holiness and spiritual maturity rather than a heart of repentance. A tendency to wear masks to hide our shame rather than experiencing the freedom of vulnerability. An unawareness of blind spots rather than having a community who loves you enough to call you out. Yeah. You can open your eyes. For the record, my hand was up the whole time. Those are bent. What is the remedy for hypocrisy? It's to know who we are in Christ. We are sinners in need of grace. We don't need to pretend that we are no longer in need of grace. Are we positionally holy? Yeah, we are the righteousness of God. By grace, you are spotless in the eyes of the Heavenly Father. Through Christ, you have been made free and you are a saint. And the Holy Spirit is in process of making us what we are not yet. Completely formed in Christ. And so there is ongoing repentance and there is ongoing confession. And there is an ongoing need for grace. Matt Chandler said, preach the gospel to yourself. Because God has already outed you on the cross. God displays himself through the weakness of those he has saved by grace. So we can put down the mask. We can put down the pretense. We can put down the posturing and the comparing and the pretending to be what we're not. And we can completely come into his grace open-handed. <laughs> Integrity is who you are when no one is looking. But integrity is rooted in freedom. It's a fidelity of character, of being single-minded with our eyes fixated on Jesus. We need grace for that. 
We need the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit for that. We also need community. So this is the, the, the next uh, cage match, community versus individuality. In chapter 4, there's this um, an amazing portrait of the sharing church community, all things in common. In chapter 5, there is this harsh reality of the idol of individuality, selfishness and, and greed. I don't have time to read this, but in Joshua 7, there's a story of Achan. And it's very similar to this story in that uh, Achan disobeyed, and they were supposed to completely uh, get rid of all of the loot when they took over the land. And he kept some of it back for himself. He hid it in his tent. And you can't hide from God. And so God found him out, and he was, he was killed because of it. The lesson from that is that sin in the camp affects the whole camp. Sin in the camp of the Israelites meant that the whole camp, the whole, the whole group of people were affected actually by sickness. What we think is just hurting ourselves actually is hurting the whole community. What we think is our own personal freedom and entitlement actually bears consequences for our brothers and sisters and our families. There is this individuality that, yeah, we are created as unique men and women in the image of Jesus. You are unlike anyone else on the planet. But when that individuality and that independence, that self-made heroic status becomes idolatry, then we are isolating ourselves from what it means to be church. And that's what they were doing. At the end of this passage, Luke uses the word ecclesia. That word means church, the gathered people of God. These followers of Jesus knew that they were the ecclesia. They didn't go to church, they were church. Genuine community changes our orientation from me to us, to love our neighbors, to simple sharing and the gifts of the Spirit. So let me, let me ask us, what resources do we have? And what needs exist around us that those resources could meet? Peter and John came to the temple, remember, in Acts 3, and the guy says, can you give me a handout? And Peter says, I don't have any money. Here's what I have. I have Jesus. Walk, you know? Uh, the use of intellect and creativity, of power and position, the use of our time, of our stuff, of our transportation, of meal swipes, of a free week, of a break, 
The gift of being present to one another, of actually listening and praying for one another. Radical generosity has so many forms. Barnabas gave out of radical generosity some land that he owned. But he also became an advocate for Paul when Paul became a Christian and everybody was scared of him. And he also became an advocate for John Mark when John Mark was fickle and just completely blew it and failed. And Paul said, no, that boy's staying at home. And Barnabas said, no, I'll take him with me. Radical generosity has a lot of different forms. It is based, though, in the fact that we are the body of Christ, that there is an interdependence that has to overcome our independence and self-made-ism. Everything we do affects everyone, whether that's generosity or sin. Let me go to this one, and then we'll lead into communion. There is generosity versus scarcity. In chapter 4, the church was free to be radical in generosity because they had been blown away by the generous grace of God. In chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira were operating from a place of scarcity and control. Instead of open-handedness, they actually had a tight grip on their stuff. The Hebrew word for money is kasaf. And it comes from a verb meaning to desire or languish after something. John D. Rockefeller Sr. was asked how much money it takes to make a man happy. And he said, just a little bit more. It's never satisfied. Jesus used the word mammon, mammon to refer to wealth. He is giving it a personal and spiritual character he says that mammon is the role of a rival god, that money is not neutral. It is power that seeks to dominate us. Bonhoeffer says our hearts have room for only one all-embracing devotion, and we can only cleave to one Lord because mammon makes a bid for our hearts. So part of this renovation project that God is doing in our hearts is actually asking the question, where's your treasure? Where your treasure is, there's your heart. Money is an idol that we must be converted from so that we can be converted to Jesus. Who owns your stuff? Generosity begins with the realization that God owns everything. So the question doesn't become, instead of becoming, uh, how much should I give to God of my stuff? The question becomes, how much of God's stuff do I actually keep for myself? That's different. That's an open-handedness. Money is an effective way of showing our love to God because it is so much a part of us. And it comes down to trust. Do I trust that God will supply all that I need according to his riches in Christ Jesus? If so, I will hold on less tightly. 
One of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to disperse gifts for grace, gifts of grace for the building up of the body of Christ. But also to form the church into a people who are unified and generous with the resources that they've been given. This is a few weeks out, but um, before Thanksgiving, we'll have what we call a week of thanks where we get together and we'll, all the community groups will come each night and, and it's open to our whole body just to, to eat together and to um, really celebrate what God has done in our midst, but also to make phone calls to hundreds of people that support this ministry. It takes like hundreds of thousands of dollars to make this happen. And we have these alums that give so sacrificially and so open-handed out of gratitude for what God has given them. There's a reciprocity to that. Stewardship is tied to our understanding for the need of grace. You have been bought with a price. So glorify God. I love the picture of abundance in chapter 4. They were all together. Everyone gave. No one had need. God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Jesus. Second, Peter 1 says, everything you need for life and godliness has already been given to you in Christ. As we come to communion, there's this picture that of the abundance of God, that he, the blood of Jesus was poured out so that we can have the fullness of Christ. His body was broken. He was given so that we can have life. Jesus says, I came to give life not just existence, not just getting by, not just going through the motions. I came to give abundance, not scarcity. Jesus said, I came open-handed so that you can be freed up to be open-handed.